Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Uh, for those who like to follow along with our lessons and read in anticipation of next week, uh, that lesson will be Isaiah 49, be in the same chapter we're going to be in today. Isaiah 49, 18 through 23. Isaiah 49, 18 through 23. Today we're going to look at the beginning of Isaiah 49. The first 13 verses. As you're turning there, um, a little bit of background about our text this morning and our study. There's a dramatic switch in this particular chapter um, as far as Isaiah's writings. Uh, he begins to, to talk about the Messiah himself. Uh, the Messiah, Jesus, is introduced um, as speaking in Isaiah 49, 1 through 6, and he states the purpose of his coming, his rejection by the Jewish nation, and the fact that uh, he, he would also be the Savior for the Gentiles. Um, in verse 1, he calls out the nations of the world to hear his voice. He, he announces his call to be the Messiah and his qualifications for being the Messiah, and that um, he would be the new embodiment of Israel. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we get into our study. Uh, who is Israel in the Bible? Uh, there's a lot of different times, a lot of different ways that word is used in the scripture. And uh, what does that mean for us today? Um, in our text today, God directly promises the ultimate success of the Messiah's work. Men would despise and reject him. No matter what the old Israel did, God would make Jesus Christ the basis of the new covenant for all mankind and would renew God's fellowship with mankind. He would free the prisoners and provide light for those who are walking in darkness. And so we're going to get into some of that, those ideas today. And then our, our final verse that we're going to look at is a, a song of praise for the, the marvelous work of the Messiah. So let's read these uh, first three verses, Isaiah chapter 49, uh, verses 1 through 3. Um, th again, this is something also referred to as a servant song. There's several of these uh, songs that are labeled throughout the book of, of Isaiah, and this is one of them. And this one in particular is special because it's the, the Savior speaking himself. It's as if Isaiah is sharing with us the direct words of Christ hundreds of years before he, he comes to the world. And this is one of those passages when, when you look at it and you study it deeper on your own, uh, we're just going to get into some, some surface ideas today about the, this particular passage. But when you look at it com and compare it uh, or add to it Isaiah 50, Isaiah 51, some of these very prophetic chapters, um, it, it, these Scriptures should just make us marvel at who God is and how great, how uh, just all-encompassing His plan is for mankind and how much forethought went into the Messiah coming to the earth and, and His work and what He would do. Uh, so some very specific uh, prophecies uh, in these several chapters, Isaiah 49, 50, 51, and uh, this chapter begins kind of the, this amazing look at, at a 
at the, the Messiah himself. Starting with verses 1 through 3, it says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened, like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. So the, the speaker is the servant. And again, who is the servant? Jesus. Okay, so this is really Christ speaking to us from 700 plus years before he, come, he came to the earth. Uh, he's not yet identified as the, the Savior, but he's referred to as the servant here. The exhortation is to listen or hear this. Why, why would it be important for the writer to repeat that idea? He said, really, it's saying the same thing, right? But what, what's the difference between listening, listen, and hear this? There's a difference, isn't there? What, what, would, what would you say is the difference between hearing and listening? Yeah. Hearing is thinking about what you heard and okay. going through it and... And trying to understand it. Okay. What else? What, what's the difference between, or why, why say listen and then hear this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good. Yeah. So if we, if we really take it in, it's, it's one thing to hear something, right? How many times have you been watching the TV and, and you hear it, but then you have to, you have to back it up and you're like, what? What did they say? <laughs> did you really, did you really listen to it? Maybe something distracted you. Um, you know, that's happened to us a lot of times. You know, the kids running through the house, and you know, we're trying to watch something, and you miss five minutes of the of the show because it, you know, of other distractions. You didn't really listen to it. You heard it in the background, but did you really take it to heart? Did you really think about it? Uh, and then, yes, as far as listening to God's word. It implies obey, obeying it and that you're going to act on whatever it is that you have been um, listening to. So without appropriate action, the act of listening remains unfilled. He mentions islands and distant nations. And uh, there's some idea as to what that might be, but um, what would be the difference here? Why, why mention islands and, and distant nations that this, this servant is speaking to? Yeah? There were a lot of islands there in the Mediterranean. Okay. There were, yes, there were a lot of, a lot of islands. Yes, yeah. It was, so the Jews could be thought of as, as the, the island, the this, this small amount of people that he would be coming to specifically. They should know who he is. But his words are also for the distant nations. Those who are far off would benefit from listening to this servant. Continuing verse 1, he, uh, he talks about being uh, called by, by the Lord from his mother's womb. Who else in the Bible can you think of that was called from the womb or, or had been delivered a, a plan of, from, from God, uh, been commissioned, really, from the womb. Yeah. John, John the 
Yes, John the Baptist. Who, who else? Anybody else? Yeah. I can't remember. Samson, Samuel was. Right? Samuel. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I, can't, I, didn't, I can't remember if Samson was or not. But yeah, there, there's a few in the Scripture. Not many that were told. But there are a few who God had commissioned them, had planned for their life purpose before they were even born. Now, that, how, how does God do that? How is that possible? And not violate their free will. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? But God, God commissioned them. He knew in His foreknowledge that they would be fine with it, that they would, they would choose to carry out this purpose in their life. And um, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to think about, but Jesus was one of these, one of these individuals who had this specific plan and purpose. And it shows that God's plan, especially for this servant, was not a haphazard plan, just something that was made up last minute or he just decided to do on a whim. It, this is something God had planned before the foundation of the world. Through his foreknowledge, he knew that he would need to send his son. And then he knew that his son, becoming a man, would decide to make this decision to, to follow him and keep his will completely. God knows his intentions for the servant. He knows that he's going to carry out his, his plan and purpose. Let's look at um, Matthew 1, verse 21. Somebody read that verse for us. Matthew 1, verse 21. Okay. Okay, so he, he was told, Joseph was told what name he would have. He was even told what he was going to do. And this long before he's born. More important than revealing the name itself of the, of the coming Messiah is the fact that God had even spoken his name. That he revealed not only what he would do and who he was, but specifically what his name would be. And he made my mouth like a sharpened sword, it says. Now, in, in the scripture, what is a sword referred to as? Okay, usually it has something to do with words, with, with the word that is spoken. And how does that, how does that you know, as far as our, our passage today, how does that compare to maybe something or things that we, we read in the New Testament that have to do with a sword? Anybody recall a, a passage that... Yeah. Okay, yes, it's going to, it's going to be like uh, a, sep a separation going to cut through all of the, all the lies, all the nonsense. It's going to reveal what the truth is. Uh, let's look at Hebrews 4.12. This is the, kind of the passage that we probably would go to. Um, talking about the the word being a like a sword. Someone read Hebrews four twelve for us. Okay. 
Hebrews 4.12. Right. So what is what does the word of God do? How is it how is it like a sword? It, it pierces. Yes. Yeah, it cuts deep, doesn't it? And that, that's why so many are, are very offended at times by the word of God. Um, now, does does God uh, want everyone to repent? Does God love everyone? Absolutely. But God's not going to put up with the sin, is He? And uh, that, that's what the Word of God does. Whenever, and whenever we're convicted by the Word of God, it, it, it cuts deep to our heart and our mind, makes us think about uh, how we're living, how we should live, and uh, what our standing is before an almighty God. And all those Jesus' words would bring peace when He was on the earth. They would also bring much division. And how, how did his words act as a sword during his day? Yeah. It revealed the truth about each person, but also about things like the Pharisees and the yeah. Sadducees. And yeah, the, the Jewish leaders of the day had a lot of problem with some of the things that he said. And, and uh, it was because... They convicted them. He, he convicted them with his words. So his, his words would, would divide in that aspect and would separate the truth from lies, just like our Hebrews chapter 4 passage is telling us. And the end of verse 2 mentions, In the shadow of his hand he hid me. Uh, the shadow of God, uh, whether it's his hand or sometimes uh, his it's referred to his wings. Under his wings, he, he protects and prov- provides, brings safety. Uh, it's just a, uh, an example of God's care or a way to illustrate how God cares for us. Now, uh, it says, like a polished arrow, he, con- he concealed me in his quiver. So, like a polished arrow, God's keeping this servant safe. He's keeping him ready for when the task would come. And he's able to accomplish his work. In verse 3, he's referring to himself as Israel. God's saying to the servant in our, in our text, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Now, could this be talking about the people of Israel? Is it possible this is referring to the people? Or could it? Could this be referring to? It's interesting, isn't it? What, what's the writer talking about here? We know now, looking back, who he's referring to. But is it, is it the nation of Israel that he's referring to? No, it's not. Yeah, yeah because it was, was the nation able to be revealed in splendor? Think about what the nation of Israel had done and, and who they were. What, what had they, at this point, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah, a lot of these prophets, what were they warning the nation of? Why, why were they sent to the nation of Israel? Uh, idolatry. Yeah, to warn them, don't follow these false gods. Don't, 
Don't follow this idol worship of these heathen nations. Come back and worship the, the God of God Almighty, the God of Israel. Now, by calling the, this servant Israel, in whom I would display my, uh, my splendor, it's revealing that God's going to display His ultimate glory, the, the, the type of uh, person or type of people that Israel should have been is going to be fully displayed in this servant, in this Messiah. And he would be the embodiment of everything that God wanted his people to be. He would be the, the greatest example of living according to the law and living according to God's purpose and plan. Now, it's, uh, it is a, uh, a good study to go through, and you could do some more on your own time. To, to talk about the meaning of the word Israel. Because to, today, if you were to ask someone, uh, what, is, what is Israel? Or who is Israel? What are the, what's the answer you're going to get? A country in the Middle East? Okay. What else? The Jews. Okay. They, and they're, they're not referring back to the Jews of the Old Testament, they're referring to people who say they're Jews today. Now, is there a Jewish nation today, according, as far as a, a Bible, biblical Jewish, a spiritual Jewish nation today? Now that, okay, tried to trick you there. Yes, it's the church. We know it's that. But the, the world, when they think Jew, when they think Israel... Um, if you were to ask this, the normal person on the street, they're going to say some of those answers. They're going to say, yes, it's, just a, it's a country in the Middle East. It, it's a, a, a spiritual group, you know, a, a religious group that, that calls himself Jews. Now, is there, is there a, an Old Testament-type Jewish nation today? No, there is not. And um, many people would disagree with us on that especially those who call themselves Jews, but there, there is no Old Testament Jewish nation today. The proper interpretation of the word Israel uh, in the Word of God must always take into the account the biblical pattern of using that word. Because the, the word Israel is used in a lot of different ways in the, in the Scriptures. And um, we have to understand how God used that word throughout Old Testament history, how he used it in New Testament history, what we read, and then how it's used now. Because there's all different ways that it has been used. Israel was the name given by the angel to Jacob on the occasion when he wrestled with him, remember? And, and after that happened, uh, he was given the new name, Israel. This is the name that, be, that came to be applied to the uh, the posterity of Jacob through the 12 patriarchs. We refer to them as the, um, the 12 sons of Jacob collectively as, as Israel. This was the name that Ephraim and the 10 tribes who succeeded from the house of David, who, that they had, they had claimed this name for themselves. Uh, remember, we uh, studying Old Testament history. We end up after the divided kingdom with who's in the north? Israel, and who's in the south? Judah. Judah. 
Okay, how many tribes were in the north? Ten. How many tribes were in the south? Two tribes. So it goes from being a man's name to a name to signify all of his descendants to then just the ten northern tribes. This was the name also Israel applied to the kingdom of Judah after the captivity and the loss of the ten tribes. So then it comes back again uh, to, to be used as the name of the nation after the ten tribes had been lost and scattered. This was the covenant name of the righteous remnant as distinguished from the, the hypocritical rebellious majority who made up those who had been deported to Babylon. And then in the times of the personal ministry of, of Christ, the name Israel was reserved for just a small amount of people who were uh, the nation of Jews called the Israelites by Christ himself. Uh, look at uh, John chapter 1, verse 47. And we can see from this passage that even when Jesus begins his ministry, there are some who are calling themselves Israelites. John 1, 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no Deceit. So there, there was a, a certain amount of people who were distinguished as the Israelites, uh, even when Jesus begins his ministry. The name Israel, though, uh, in, in our time, is a signification or, or it's a title that rightfully belongs to the true followers of Christ, his church. Uh, when Paul writes to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6, he refers to the church as the Israel of God. Um, the apostles are now reigning over the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, when we look at um, passages like Revelation chapter 7, a reference to the church there, the kingdom or, or church of the Messiah, there's clues throughout the New Testament that reveal that the church is now the Israel, is God's Israel, His chosen people. And the name Israel in this very passage refers exclusively to Christ the Messiah. And this corresponds with the fact that Christ is the head of the church and that church belongs to the Israel of God. So this this word is used in many different ways throughout the scripture. And it's important for us to see how that progression of how God used that word to signify uh, his chosen people. Not that it was just used for one particular person or one purpose, but throughout biblical history and even today, when we use the term Israel, it refers to people of God. And today it's the church. The Church of Christ. Right, let's look at verses 4 and 5. Our text, Isaiah 49, verses 4 and 5. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. 
And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back, from, back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. So have you ever labored in vain or, or looked back on something and said, man, that, I really, that was a lot of work for nothing? <laughs> Um, sometimes this, this happens. Uh, I spent, as many of you know, I spent a, most of my professional career before working with the congregation here in, in sales, primarily in sales. And if you've ever worked in any kind of sales job, you know there's, there's times when you labor a lot. You put in hours and hours and hours and hours looking over estimates and proposals and all, you know, coming up with all this information and offering your expertise and then it gets rejected <laughs> and nothing happens. And you're like, oh, you know, there's so much work for nothing. You know? But really, was it, was it for nothing? Even in those circumstances, what can you learn? What are some of the things that, that are good that come out of, of, of laboring, but maybe it doesn't turn into, turn into what you wanted it to be? Yeah. Yes, so at least you did your best. Okay. What's that? Yes, yeah, a lot of times you, you find out what you did wrong. Think something that you need to correct so that it works out better the next time. What else? The result at the end, okay. You be, you're thankful for when those times when it does work out, right? Yeah. Yeah, the experience that's there for it, but yeah. Yeah, a lot of patience. Yeah, it teaches you to, to persevere, to stay in it, regardless of, of you know, specific outcomes. You continue to do it, right? And it's a discouraging feeling to, to look back at your work and to think, ah, oh, man, just really didn't turn into much. And um, here this, this servant, he, he's... he's Lamenting, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for, for nothing at all. Because God's definition of success is not the conventional earthly definition, faithful servants can and, and will get discouraged. For instance, uh, we think about the prophet Jeremiah faithfully proclaiming the word of God. Uh, saying, doing exactly what God wanted him to do. But from a human standpoint, he failed. How, how did Jeremiah fail? Thinking back about what you know about Jeremiah, what it, how did he fail? What ultimately, how, he, he was sent to the Jews to do what? We just mentioned it earlier. What was he sent to them? Yeah, he's warning them against idolatry. God's going to come. He's going to punish you. There's this, this nation that's looming in the distance. He, he's ready to send them to come and, and attack you and, and take you into captivity. It's going to happen. You need to turn. I'm warning you. Does it ultimately happen? Yeah, they, he, they end up going into captivity. Babylon comes, just like he says, and, and the, the Israelites have to pay for not listening to God. And Jeremiah's probably looking back, man, not even one person listen to me. And he, uh, 
he has to, to spend the, his, the rest of his life thinking about how his labor is se- seeming like his labor was in vain. But uh, did Jesus experience this? How did Christ experience this, this idea? Could he have looked back and said, man, I did, uh, did I labor in vain? You know, these, are, these are like his words here in this verse, chapter four, in this verse four. I've spent my strength. I mean, who, who was it that should have known better? Yeah, at least the leaders, at least, at least the, the men who learned from a very young age, young boys, they had learned how they should live and how they should adhere to God's word. And, and Christ de- had to deal with that discouragement. Uh, even his own friends, even those who were his closest followers, fled and betrayed him when he was hung on the cross, uh, there to die in excruciating pain. Jesus had much more reason than even Jeremiah um, for co- the confidence that his work and reward were uh, in God's hands and, and not in the hands of men. And that, that's what we have to remember. When we look at our work and we think, man, am I just laboring in vain? And the times when it gets discouraging, when we're talking to friends, family members, and, and we may be like, man, I, I'm not getting anywhere. Take heart that you haven't had to go through nearly what Jeremiah went through. We definitely didn't have to go through what what Jesus went through. None of us had to go through what what Paul went through. So take take heart in these biblical examples, these men that that stayed faithful, that went through the most difficult of struggles, and and look at Christ ultimately as that example, and and realize that your labor is not in vain. The Word of God tells us that, that. what we do in the Lord is not going to return back to us void. It, it's going to produce some, some result, some good result. And um, be encouraged by that. That your reward is with God. That's, that's why Jesus was able to stay focused when he was on the cross. Even though he was going through excruciating pain, he was able to, to stay true to the will of God because he knew that his reward wasn't with men didn't matter what, what men said about him. It didn't matter you know, the accolades that he got from, from the Jews or from the, the, the people that he affected. His reward's with God. That's what's important. And that, that's the mindset that we need to keep whenever things get difficult. How, we, how do you keep your eyes on the big picture of God's plan during times of disappointment? What biblical promises regarding God's plans for the future help to keep you focused. And what are, what are those things that you've read, those promises in, that you find in God's Word that keep you headed on, on the right direction? Yeah. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never leave me, never forsake me. Yeah, He's always, He's there. Yeah. yeah well, no matter what, you use that self analogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got the victory. It does, yeah. Really, nothing else matters. Yeah. Uh huh. All right. Yeah. We can get through difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really what Paul's talking about there. He's not. He's not talking about I can be a, a professional basketball player if I if I think it. That's never going to happen. I can be a professional golfer if I if I no. 
No, that's not. He's talking, I can get through any struggle. I can get through any difficulty because Christ gives me the strength. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, remembering that even, even the difficult seasons have a purpose. It's hard to see that when you're in it, but when, especially when you look back on it, you realize, man, I, I didn't labor in vain. I learned so much from that. Yeah. Somebody else have something? Yeah. Um, setting your eyes on things that are above. Yes. Yeah. 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 If it, if this was if this was Christ focused, and He's our perfect example, right? So if this was Jesus's focus, that His reward was with my God, that needs to be our focus, regardless of life circumstances. Your reward is with God, and remember that all the time. Uh, he refers back in verse five again to the womb. Uh, recalling what was said in verse 1 of our text, um, that he, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. Now, who's this talking about? Could, could this, again, be, be talking about the nation of Israel being gathered back to himself? Were, were they gathered back after this time period that this is written? Yes, some of them did. Some of them stayed, didn't they? They wanted to stay in Babylon. They wanted to stay in captivity, but, but they were. They were gathered back, a remnant, a small amount. But ultimately, who is this speaking of that's being gathered back to him? Us. The church. Yeah. So you, collectively, as the church, were prophesied about hundreds and hundreds of years before even Christ came that God had a plan for you, that He would bring you back, would gather you back to Him. Verse 6, He says, It is too small a thing for you to be My servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Now, that, that's a, an interesting verse too, and, and it, it really goes a step further to prove that these words just weren't for Israel. That these words are for the church as well. Because he said it's too small a thing or too little thing for the Messiah, you know, the, what he would go through, to just bring back that small remnant of Israel. Jesus going through his, his life and his ministry, well, coming to earth was a huge thing. Living the glories of heaven and being willing to come to earth and live as a man was that was that was a big enough uh, thing to do for him. But then to to live uh, as a man to to go through his ministry to go through the trials and the the, the disappointments that he went through and ultimately to to hang on the cross. The the price that was paid on the cross, in other words, according to this passage, was too big of a thing. It was too much involved in the cost of Christ hanging on the cross just to bring back a small remnant of that nation of Israel that had betrayed God and been sent into captivity. Because who did Jesus ultimately hang on the cross for? Everyone. 
anyone that has ever lived will ever live. And it, it magnifies the importance. It magnifies the, 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 the incredible cost of the sin of the world. It's revealed that God considered such an achievement on the part of the Messiah too light a thing that is a work not sufficiently great to, full, to be the full task of the Messiah. That His complete work would involve also His bringing light to the heathen nations of Gentiles. It would have been an insufficient reward for the ideal servant to have received only the conversion of the Jews as a result of His labor. Therefore, God gave him for his, his uh, recompense the gathering in of the Gentiles also and made him the means of salvation even to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's Kaufman, Kaufman's few words of commentary on that verse, that it, it was just too small a thing for Christ uh, if, if the entire world wasn't part of the redeeming work on the cross. The rest of verse 6 says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So here he, he explains it's going to go much further than just the Israelite nation that God's plan would be for the Gentiles. And it's interesting that uh, in, the, in the New Testament, by the time uh, Christ comes to the earth in New Testament times, uh, this um, animosity that the Jews had toward the Gentiles had grown. And by the time Jesus is having to deal with it, what, what is the Jews feeling to the, towards those who are outside the, the Jewish nation or who they think is Israel? Which, which makes Jesus' work even more difficult, makes the apostles' work a lot harder. What, well, how did the Jews think of those outside of Israel, outside of the nation? They were unclean, yes. Yeah, worthless. Yeah, yeah. They thought of them like a like a dog. You know, they were just uh, worth nothing. And Jesus comes and he he brings them in, and and that obviously that causes a lot of uh, tension between him and the Jewish leaders who were thinking this way. Paul and Barnabas had to deal with this. Um, if we turn over to Acts chapter thirteen, we get a little bit of. Um, I mean, there's several other passages we could go to to, to look at how the, the apostles were thrown out of city after city. But this is one that gives us a look into uh, how the, the Jews felt about the Gentiles and then the, the work that the apostles were doing. Um, and based, it's based on the reaction here of the Jews. Uh, Acts chapter 13, starting in, in verse 46 says, Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. And who's that? Who did they go to first? Yeah, city after city in the book of Acts. That was Paul's, uh, his modus operandi, go into the synagogue and he, he would proclaim Christ to them. And if they rejected it, then he would preach in the streets. Whoever wanted to listen to it, he would tell them. But he said, We, we came to you and spoke the word of God to you first. And since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, 
that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Sound familiar? What passage is Paul quoting there? Yeah, Isaiah 49.6. Attributing that verse uh, to Isaiah, that it was a prophecy for the church. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So it's yet another example of how the Jews of the first century rejected Christ and who He was and uh, how ultimately this gospel message would go to the Gentiles, go to those who who wanted to hear it. Verse 7 of our text says, This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to Him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So even though some despised him, rejected him, as we just read, ultimately what's going to be the outcome of his work? And and ultimately who is he going to be glorified as according to these verses? Yeah, he's going, he's going to be king of kings. He's going to be Lord of lords. Ultimately, he will be exalted, as we read in the New Testament, to, to that high office above all earthly rulers, above anyone who is, who is called king or lord. The reason people respond with worship when hearing the gospel is because he is the Lord of lords. Verse 8 says, This is what the Lord says, In the time of my favor I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. The, the, the time of God's favor, the day of salvation, are parallel terms here. Um, ultimately, these things would be fulfilled in Jesus Himself. Uh, God would restore the land. He would reassign the desolate inheritances whenever they would come back from captivity. Uh, some of them would get back what they once had. He would restore those things um, as they once were before. But ultimately, who is the inheritance going to go to? going to be the church. This is another, another promise that God's going to provide an inheritance for His people. Verse 9, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will, be, uh, they will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. Now, there's some interesting imagery in this verse um, coming out of, of uh, captivity would have been like coming out of darkness. And thinking about how they might have been treated physically, and now they have their freedom again. But 
what kind of freedom do we experience in Christ? It's a spiritual freedom, yes, a freedom from sin, coming out of, the, of sin, which is referred to as darkness, into His marvelous light. Uh, this idea that they would feed by the roads and they, and they would find pasture on every barren hill. What's, what's wrong with that? Do the, do the animals feed by the side of the road? Is there anything growing, really, right by the side of the road? No. Do, do you find pasture land on top of the hill? If we, uh, we keep reading, it says, verse 10, They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. So the, the shepherd would expect to find greener pasture in the valley. The green pasture is find, found by the flowing streams of water, but the abundance of God's promises through this servant is so great that the vegetation is going to grow by the side of the road. That there's going to be pasture found on the top of the, the rocky and desolate hills. And the last phrase is noteworthy because idolatry was often associated with the hilltop, with being up on the mountain in the high places. But God's promise is that His own faithful people will be able to, to be there, to eat faithfully, or eat safely in places that had, had previously been polluted by idolatrous practices. It's in the idea that He's going to reclaim it for His purpose and use it for something holy, Verse 11 says, I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. Now, what's, what's strange about that saying? Thinking back at their time, time frame, is there, is there going to be highways or roads on the mountaintop? No. Is it, is it going to, he says, I will turn, my highways will be raised up. What do you know about ancient roadways? What, what was it like to travel on, on the ancient roadways? Okay, yeah, it was, it was hard, but what else? What, what would you normally find or have to be afraid of? Robbers. Probably, yeah, there probably were. Yes, yeah, thieves, robbers, people ready to attack you at any time. A traveler approaching a mountain in ancient times had three options. Go over it, go around it, or turn around. Going over might be the most direct route, but all sorts of dangers are found in the mountain heights. When the servant led the people, even in the mountains, there would be a safe way to cross. The highways here likely refer to desert roads that would have been sunken down in the valley they would have often been treacherous to follow because of the type of people that would be there. And he's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to change this. I'm going to, I'm going to make it safe for you to be on the mountaintop. I'm going to make it safe for you to, to travel on these, in these valleys. And many are going to come from afar, verse 12 says. We'll end with 13. says, Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts His people and will have compassion on His afflicted ones. So just at the right time, God sent Jesus to earth to offer salvation as the Lord of all 
to all who would accept Him as Savior. Our responsibility in the time of salvation is twofold, to proclaim the good news to all and to worship God along with all creation. We'll end with that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this reminder from this ancient book that just helps us to remember who You are and the great plan and purpose that You had through Your Son who became the servant to all and the once-for-all sacrifice for the sin of the world. We thank You for the opportunity to praise Him, to learn about Him today, to remember what He did on Calvary. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.